Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Imperfect Pod, where we discuss masculinity and manhood more intentionally and purposefully. In this episode, we talk about Asian masculinity, spirituality and masculinity, and the importance of masculine and feminine energies. My guest is Johnson Chong. We get into his bio at the start of the episode, but I did want to preface this that this is we talk about Asian masculinity quite a bit. This was filmed or recorded, sorry, before the events of the Atlanta, Georgia shooting uh, a week ago. And there are some elements that we kind of tie in, not too much, but we talk a little bit about self-defense, um, guns uh, that that weren't really part of the conversation. They weren't built off of that, that event in Atlanta, Georgia. So I did want to preface this, that we do talk a little bit about that. Um, and I will link Johnson Chong's information in the bio of this uh, episode as well but again contact me at luke at the imperfect pod uh, for my email or at the imperfect pod on instagram and we'll get into the show now hello imperfect listeners welcome back to another episode today my guest is johnson chong he is the award-winning and best-selling author of sage sapien from karma to dharma he is a shamanic energy medicine practitioner yoga and meditation teacher who teaches in sydney i would love to be in sydney right now and hosts workshops and retreats around the world he has an eight-week shamanic meditation transformation course designed to help people break through their mental, emotional, and spiritual roadblocks so they can live with more inner peace and self-love. Johnson, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Luke. It's nice to be here. Yes. We're going to talk about some really exciting things, including being an Asian man who is also gay, part of the LGBTQ community, and how that fits into your identity and how that fits into the whole world of masculinity and manhood. But before we get into that, one question I always ask my guests is, who is one person, dead or alive, that you'd like to have over for dinner, and what would you cook for them? Oh my God, that's such a hard question. Oh man, dead or alive, is this fictional or, or real life fictional, person? Could be a future person too. Like I've had some people pick like their future grandkid, I think. Wow, okay. I would say... I, I think this answer would probably change day to day, but I've been, I would say it would have to be someone religious and historical. So I would say either Jesus Christ or the Buddha, just because they've had so much impact on how we see the world today in belief systems and institutionalized religion. So that would be fascinating to see how it all started. Yeah. And what would you cook for them? What would I cook for them? I, I always do a curry because that's easy. You put the coconut milk in, put your spices, let things simmer. It's That's my go-to. <laughs> that's what you're getting if you're coming over dinner. A curry would be fantastic. Green curry. Green curry. curry. I, I can't do. I, I like I like a green, uh, non-spicy, mild-ish kind of curry. Non-spicy. Yeah. Like a sweet curry with basil. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if Jesus would like really like curry. spicy food. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? I, <laughs> yeah, mild. I don't yeah. really do spicy myself either. What would you, I'm curious, what would some things that you'd want to talk to them about be? Well, a little bit about their life experience, right? Because I mean, it's what what's fascinating with religion is that I think that a lot of the teachings, the universal wisdoms are very common across the board, how to love, how to be compassionate, how to be a kind human being. But then there's so much misinterpretation of how to do that. 
from institutionalized religion. And so if people, if everyone were to get a more personal understanding of the life journey of some of these religious figures who have been idolized, it would for sure change the way that we view religion. And I'm not a religious person myself in the dogmatic way of how religion is presented. I'm more spiritual, I would label myself as, where I dabble in various traditions from shamanic, from yogic, from Buddhist um, traditions. Yoga isn't really a religion, it's more of philosophy, but and so is Buddhism. And there are other esoteric practices from other schools of, of practice that I, I draw from. So, I mean, it's more about how do we take these teachings and make it our own, right? Versus just blindly follow, right? Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree. As someone who grew up in a uh, Christian home, I definitely relate to a lot of what you said and being like, it's the organized institution that has a lot of flaws, but the person themselves is an interesting character, an interesting leader who I think models a lot of proper ways to live. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's yeah. fascinating in connecting it with masculinity because a lot of our, and that's really what we're kind of talking about masculinity today, is, is that the mindset that religion has established culturally in how men, biological males, are so focused on pitting uh, a very binary way of looking at gender identity and sexual orientation and then the roles and expectations within society. This all comes from a very puritanical Christian way of viewing the world. Well, I'm reading this versus, book. I, yeah, mm -hmm. I just started this book called Wild at Heart and because I'm part of a men's group and a, a non religious affiliated one but a lot of the guys in the group are christian and it's called wild at heart and it's all about being a the man that god called you to be or I, and i see that is a lot of the conversations that happen around masculinity in society are the related to the biblical sense of like an angry man or one that you know is reserved but also channels the anger and wrath of god and I'm like, and I'm reading it. And I'm like, how much of this is pseudoscience? How much of this is real? And I'm really trying to balance all of that out right now and see, because right. I'm in Canada, but a lot of the audience that listens to this is in America. And you see how much patriotism, masculinity, manhood is tied to politics. And it's interesting to me. And I'm trying to navigate all that as a, in myself and as a society, how do we move beyond that because the, the the separation of church and state will never happen without that separation between man and, and masculinity and, and politics either and i would even add to that that there needs to be a spiritual component to it as well because if we're not open to seeing the world from a non-binary perspective and spirituality is very non-binary it's fluid right it's in it's independent of religion it carries the essence of religion but it is not stuck to the dogma of how a priest or a particular school of thought decides to right buddhism itself is a is a is an energy it's a philosophy it's a lifestyle yet there are sects of buddhism that make it religious right it's different schools of thought it's like this is how we practice it and then people get into like theological debates and then there's differences and whatnot and then that becomes like someone's existence is like basically proving this is my way and it's and i don't really care about proving someone's way 
one way or the other. It's more, it's a personal direct experience and that should be enough, but it's, I don't know what it is about man and our psyche or humankind, particularly men in wanting to control the narrative of how someone believes. And that, that goes into a whole other like power dynamic. And I was thinking about masculinity from an Eastern perspective when we were talking about doing this show that if I think back to ancient China, so I'm, I'm Chinese American, that homosexuality was very much part of, it was accepted as part of life. It was it, before colonialists came and, and China was occupied. And then the influences of a very Christian, more regimented way of looking at things, more, yeah, more good and evil, this is a sin kind of perspective of looking at the world. Before that came in, it was very much part of the history. And of course, if you look at a place like Thailand, which has never been successfully colonized the West, they actually, Thailand, if we look at the culture of Thailand, has more acceptance of, of gender fluidity, of, trans, of, transgendered, of transgendered people, of cross-dressing, of, of accepting it into their culture. And, and so you could see it as a pure connection of how Asian culture was prior to the West coming in and implementing their viewpoints. And, and of course, like modern Chinese culture kind of has forgotten what what ancient Chinese culture was in the courts. You mm -hmm. see this a lot. It was considered like a family honor if someone were to get picked up, let's say, by some powerful general. And it's like, oh, wow, you're raising the status of the family. They, they didn't really look at homosexuality as a sin. And so when you have that perspective on the world, and you see, and, and then also it was very much accepted that men who had let's say, attractions and feelings towards and sexual feelings towards other men, that it was okay to allow them to explore that. And then to eventually come back to their familial obligations of producing heirs and having children. So of course, there was a whole other issues around family obligations, but that it would that men were allowed to go and explore. And then, I mean, you think you look at all the concubines in court and people had multiple lovers and multiple wives, and it was a very open society in that way in ancient China. And then of course the West comes in and, and now modern China is totally not that way anymore. It's, it's gotten a little bit more contractive and more in defense mode from, from it's from being colonized, fighting back. This is how we must present. This is what the modern world looks like. This is what it means to be a modern, strong society. We must be masculine in whatever you know that looks like. And so culturally, I mean, you see, you you see how gender politics plays into so much more than than what it seems like on the yeah. surface. And then that actually affects how men are conditioned into thinking what it means to be a man. But if you just imagine like stepping into ancient China, also in ancient Greece, in, you know, ancient Korea, ancient Japan, I mean, the, a lot of the, the theater, the Kabuki and no theater traditions of Japan, and even in some of the Korean shamanic um, traditions, it was very accepted for men to dress up as women and to portray the feminine. And that was okay. It was part of, it was part of the culture. And um, now it's not okay, but a lot of that's from Western or yeah. Christian constructs of the world. And so if we don't look at the spiritual, religious part of why we see things the way we see things, we won't really be able to break down the what people like to call toxic masculinity. We won't really understand the full expression of what it means to be a human being. And then we get really fixated on, oh, this is what it means like to be a man. And that's toxic masculinity, I think. It's the idea of what it means to be a man. Like versus the rigidity. Just, yes. Versus just 
being a human, just be what's authentically happening in the moment, regardless of gender. That's something that I've been thinking about so much is does toxic masculinity exist? And I think it does, but it's weird how society is deemed to, to title it because I think a lot of the things that men deem as masculine traits, whether that's providing and provision and caring and preserving are very noble traits, being integrity, being accountable, being authentic. I think those are very noble traits, none of which are toxic. Being competitive is not toxic on its own or in its bubble, but taken over to an extreme can be toxic in ways. And I, that's where I'm like, confused by the whole conversation because I Mm. don't want it to be deemed that those things are bad. Those characteristics, those traits are bad. I don't think there's anything wrong with aggression because if you look at it in war, aggression is necessary. If you look at it, if you're trying to protect your family and you're aggressive towards another person who's threatening your family, then that would be a noble trait. So in a bubble, those things aren't really bad. It's only when they're taken to extreme. So I think there's only toxic situations. I don't really think there's toxic masculinity and everything that's like not those things, which would be like sexual assault are just criminal. They're not inherently masculine, even though men typically do act on them a bit more. I think we're a bit more hardwired. You know, our amygdala is a bit bigger. Our sex drive is bigger too, I think from like a biological level. So I think some things are are hardwired, but a lot of it is... And men need to learn self-control. That's a huge aspect of also manhood is learning how to harness those things for good. And that's what I'm really trying to explore right now in that whole masculinity thing. But I'm not trying to create a rigid definition of, of masculinity at all. I'm trying to open it up so it can be inclusive sure. to everyone. Sure. I mean, okay. So, I mean, there were. this is a very loaded topic with masculinity. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I, I completely understand where you're coming from. And I, I think that once we start labeling things as good and bad, we fall into the binary religious sense of do good, be a do-gooder, and then sin. That itself, it's binary, good and evil. If we look at the more shamanic, indigenous ways of viewing the world, there is no good and evil. There just is positive and negative, not in the good evil sense, but in a science sense, a plus charge and a minus charge. So if we kind of look at as positive and negative from a scientific point of view, it's about and we and then we have associate positive as masculine and negative as as feminine, again, not as good or bad, but as a charge on a battery. If we look at a charge on a battery, there has to be a plus and a minus in order for the currents to work and for electricity to happen. So it's our ideas and our and the constructs that we have placed around masculinity and femininity that 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 then we all of a sudden start to view the world as, oh, this is more desirable. Even women, I used to work a lot with very strong corporate women who were the leaders in their companies in, in Singapore, especially because it's a very, and I lived in Singapore for six years. A lot of the women, they're over-masculinized. I'm not saying this is a good or bad thing. It's just an observation. And the reason being is that they are, they're wearing, they're dressing in, in pantsuits. They're not a bad or good thing. It's just an observation. Again, I'm coming from a neutral place of observation and it's, and presenting themselves in a certain way at work I need to play the role of power. And power to, to, to me is, if I were a woman, if I'm stepping into the shoes of the client, is it looks like this. It means you have to be aggressive, dominant in the workplace. You have to make very clear-cut decisions. 
possibly throw people under the bus to be cutthroat a little bit. That's one way of accessing power from an idea of what masculinity is because you feel that it will garner some respect because that's how you've been brought up. It's just to favor the masculine approach as better than a feminine approach. A feminine approach is a bit more receptive. It's softer. It's a little bit more like if you ever have seen the movie like D- Dangerous Liaison with, have you seen that? with this? movie person. Okay. Well, okay. So it, it's like about the French court and John Malkovich and, and some other people in there. And it's all about these like subversive tactics of how to like manipulate other people. That's a more feminine approach. Again, not good or bad. It's the energy of feminine. It's a yin yang principle. If you look at that sign of yin and yang in the East, that's what that means. There's no judgment on what is masculine and feminine. It's just that those that's if we were to label what masculine energy is, it is what you just said. It's providing, it's action-oriented, it's it, aggression falls under that. It's about uh, structure, hierarchy. It is about putting things into files. It is purpose, it's will-driven, it's about ego. I mean, this is the masculine force. It is the plus charge, right? The the minus charge of the battery, which is the, the yin principle, it's the feminine, right? Is more about receptive. It's a bit more, it's wider, it's inclusive. It's about creativity. It's a little bit more nebulous. It's not as linear, not as logical. It's more felt, it's more emotional. That's the feminine energy. The good and bad that we've associated with like, oh, in the corporate place, workplace, you shouldn't be so emotional. You should be a little bit more decisive. You shouldn't express yourself so clearly. So then, because that's not powerful. So it's the beliefs that we've placed around masculine and feminine that make it toxic. Because then now someone says, oh, this is the way you must express your masculine and feminine energies. You can't show your creative, expressive, authentic you know, self at work, you can only show the masculine side because that's favorable. That's what makes masculinity toxic. It's the belief systems around the energies of masculine and feminine, which is different from male and female because being male and female is a biological association that we have to, to sex, right? It's biological, mm-hmm. right? Whereas feminine and masculine from a spiritual perspective is just the energy that exists in every biological creature. Even animals have it. If you look at, let's just look at a horse, for example, right? A a horse has masculine and feminine traits in energy, regardless of its male-female gender. uh, A male horse can be caring and can be nurturing their young just as much as defending and this is my territory and kind of whatever the horses do. It, It has both, right? You look at human beings, same thing. A father is just as nurturing to a child as they can be protective and a provider. So can a mother can exhibit both masculine, like I'm going to provide for the family, but I can also defend my young, like mother bears are really can be really ferocious if they're defending their young. That's a masculine energy, Mm -hmm. but they also nurture. So every being has both of these energies of yin and yang. It's about the balance of both. And if we have an idea of, oh, wait a minute, being more of the provider is better as a man, that's what it means to be a man, then that's what becomes toxic. It's because you have a certain idea of a natural flow of energy that is inherent in all things in nature that just is. Sometimes you might be just a little bit more 
yeah, I want to express myself like like RuPaul's Drag Race, which has been a global phenomenon. There, there now there's like UK Drag Race. There's like there's a Thai version of Drag Race. There's the Netherlands, and it's like going. It's like coming to Australia. Like it's all over the world. They do this challenge where they dress up straight men. Sometimes there are some episodes where they take men from the military, um, in drag, and these are like really macho men and. Across the board, you watch these men transform because they get to express their femininity and their ability to tap into like this other part of themselves. And they love it. Like they love it. And they're still straight men, but they're like, they're able to be a different version of themselves and that they never would have had like their permission to, but because they're on a show, on a reality show and, and because everyone's watching and, and it's okay. They're like, oh, wow, this is a lot of fun to put on a, a wig and like makeup and all these other things that, that we're taught like it's wrong if you're a straight man in like the mainstream culture. Right? Well, yeah, it's funny because I had a cross-dresser come on and it, they, she separates the idea between cross-dressing and drag, but like it's one day a week she would dress up as a woman and like it, she felt better to express her femininity. And I asked her, I'm like, when you do cross-dress, do you... Like, do you feel more comfortable showing the feminine side of who you are as a man, as your biological sex? And she's like, I never really thought about it like that. But yeah, like, it's I like, I'm like, I noticed you when she was wearing her wig, she would flip her hair back and, and kind of comb it back. And I just noticed a little bit more femininity to her when she was in the cross dress. And I'm like, oh, that's, and I wouldn't have noticed it if I wasn't on Zoom with her. And I thought that was really interesting. So why do, and I always, I read this great book once for the love of men by Liz Plank. And it talks about it is why do we only see provision as financial providing? Why don't we see it as the woman is a provider by staying at home? And if she's a stay at home mom and taking care of the kids, like why isn't that provision? Those, those are both providing. We just need to broaden the mm -hmm. definitions of these terms. Protection, as you said, mama cubs. Like Protection penguin. is a masculine energy. Yeah. It, it's a, it, it is because it's about, if we look at it from an energetic perspective, it, yeah, like mama bear is going to protect her cubs. It's a fighting energy. Anything that is an outward force that show, like that, that, that is channeled energy like that, it, it's about the plus, it's the symbol of the phallus. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's the thrust energy. When there's a thrust energy, it's a plus charge. When, mm -hmm. it's, a, when it's a receptive energy, like I'm going to sit here and receive, I'm going to sit here and meditate. I'm going to sit here and just shoot the shit and not do anything purposely, just lay down and, and hang out on the hammock. That's a feminine energy. It's receptive. That's kind of the baseline of looking at masculine feminine energy. So a mother bear has masculine energy when she goes into, you better, you know, stay back or I'm going to, I'm going to kill you. That like that the mothers do the same thing human mothers do the same thing like don't come near my kid that's providing for sure so if we look at it from an energetic charge we all carry masculine feminine charges yeah of energy and isn't it true like what the older a woman gets the more masculine she gets and the older a man gets the more feminine they get like it starts to balance out in a relationship i feel like i've read that somewhere before i'm not sure if it's yes true. for sure yeah you start to explore because then you don't really care anymore about what people expect of you in your assigned biological gender and then you feel a little bit more expressive i've worked with men in some of my courses where they again they've had children they've had they've gone through the whole climbing the ladder of what it means to be a successful man and here i've gotten this career and i've, I've created the life but then something's missing and, and people want to connect to something beyond the expectations of what was kind of thrown on them they want to explore 
people want to explore their whole humanness. So, I mean, I have, I created a little drag character during the height of COVID just because it was fun to put on a wig and to just show a different side of myself and put on some makeup and just to be goofy. And yeah, I was flipping my hair and saying some silly things that I probably wouldn't have said if I was dressed like, like this. And I don't even... I don't even think of myself as male or female anymore. I'm just a person. And sometimes I'm like really silly and goofy and very feminine. And some other days I can be very fierce and very like, no, this is how it's going to be. And I used to care a lot about what people thought, especially in the gay community, because that thing that happens with heterosexuals, we talked about this, I think, a little bit. Yeah, and we're going to talk about um, it in a bit too. (laughs) It's like I used to have that. I used to hate myself for being like, like, oh gosh, people are going to think I'm too like effeminate because I've been taught that was wrong, that it was a sin, that I have to be a man. So I used to hide and I used to be, I used to be a little bit less, less expressive with my facial expressions. I would talk like down here and drop my voice. Like, I mean, my voice is naturally low, but I would keep it a little monotone, a little like, Hey, not move my head so much, not gesture so much or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Because it was like trying to control how I would express. And I think that it was very much part and parcel of growing up as a kid and I was born in the 80s. But then as a young adult in like the 90s, you would hear this all the time. I don't hear it so much anymore, but I also don't hang out with young kids. But you would go, that's so gay. You would hear that all the time. And then you always associate gay with being weird or effeminate or Mm -hmm. not manly. So And you always got the sense that it was wrong, right? Don't do that. It's perverse. It's against your nature. So... I, as a gay kid growing up in the 80s and 90s, you go, oh, if, if you're going to be gay, you have to hide it. You, you can't show that part of yourself. So, I mean, so then I started hating myself anytime I like, I actually, at, in my early 20s, I, I was dating this guy, or not dating, I shouldn't say that. I went on a date. I went on a date with this guy who I went back to his house and, and it was great. It was fantastic. Like I, I was like super attracted to this guy and like, yeah, and it was like very masculine presenting because I had this idea of like what's attractive because of societal conditional imprints. And then he had a closet full of like feather boas and wigs. And I was young at the time. And I just thought, oh my goodness, like, and he's, and he came out and this happens with drag queens a lot. They come out to people that they date and like, oh, I'm a drag queen. Also, it's, it's this job I do. I didn't get it at the time because I was like, oh my God, like this person's, and then all these thoughts came in, like this person's too effeminate. Like it just, because of these ideas I had, it just, it ate everything. It just took away the entire experience mm-hmm. I had where I had this actual like fantastic day, very attracted to this person. But then as soon as I had that program in my head, like, oh, this is wrong. He's too effeminate. This is, you shouldn't date this person. Like it kind of ended it because I was immature and I hadn't done that work mm-hmm. on myself on like disentangling myself from who the hell cares about how you express your gender, your humanness. If you express your humanness and you want to create and, and your art through, through a drag character, great. I could not see that. And I think that idea of, of masculinity also, it has kind of impregnated itself into gay subculture. And so then gay people... I can only speak from a gay male's perspective. It might be similar with lesbians as well and bisexuals. But from my perspective, like there's, there's this, there's this favoring of like the lumberjack man. This is, this is kind of, then there's a hierarchy in gay culture of like the more masculine right? the more dominant the person, the more attractive they are, which isn't actually true of like all of gay subculture. There's, 
there are people that are attracted to more androgynous types of presentations of expression. So, I mean, it's just that, again, it's mainstream hetero culture kind of influencing queer culture, which the, the definition of queer is that it's fluid, right? It's out of the norm. And, and yet it's ironic how it's created this prejudice um, within our culture. Yeah. Which is bizarre. Yeah. Well, because even when I think about it, for me too, I have this insecurity where when I'm on dates, I feel like I talk a lot with, I do talk a lot with my hands. I, in a way I communicate more feminine, I would say than masculine. I'm expressive. I'm good with my words. I talk a lot with my hands. You're seeing it right now. And it, I find that really hard to balance as well. I love it. But why yeah. do we care about like how much you gesture with your hands? I mean, right? if you look at like Italian culture, I, I grew up with a lot of like Italian Americans in New York City. So like, I, I think Italian men are very, I mean, they cry, they're connected to their, they love mama. They're not afraid to like kiss their mothers in front of people. They're not afraid to show like emotions, how they feel. And yet there's a very strong like masculine presence. So if, if you look at, I mean, if you look at that as an example, I'm making a very you know broad assumption here, but just in, in Italian culture, it's very, it's a very affectionate. Men kiss each other on the cheek. You see this. Yeah. So, I mean, that's feminine like behavior or feminine uh, energy. I shouldn't say behavior, but feminine energy to show affection and to gesture, to express that's feminine energy, but they don't give a shit. So <laughs> it's like, what, like, what is the, what is that thing yeah. that makes us care? Yeah. You know? Well, I, I do my best not to care. And it's been a, process but i'm like I'm, i've always been someone who's like if they're not going to like me for me i'm always in texts i'm over enthusiastic i'd say than under enthusiastic i'm not a dry texter i'm not going to play those games so i've worked beyond that i'm like i'll just be me and if they don't like me then they're they're i don't want them so i'm confident in that way but i wanted to talk about even how you, you talked about heteronormative standards in in queer culture and even in in straight culture you know it's like the lumberjack guy is seen as sexier. You look at Thor, you look at a lot of these like gods and that still is the expectation. And so for guys like- Oh my God, the glorification of Vikings is is crazy. What's happening now with all the Viking shows. And actually a lot of our, a lot of anthropologists and archeologists, when you, when they were digging up bones of Vikings, Vikings were only like five, nine. Like that was their average height. Now, a single woman like on this. Tinder wouldn't like them. <laughs> right, no exactly. So, so there has been this like glorification of what the Viking male was, but what wasn't true. And, mm-hmm. and if you look at Viking culture was very shamanic. The shamanic culture was very prevalent in, I mean, you see that with the pagans and the Celts. And if you actually look into the history of shamanic culture, it's the connection to nature. Nature is feminine, right? The earth is feminine. It's with ritual and with ceremony, Right, Native American culture, Aboriginal culture here in Australia, right, the Maoris. The, the connection to the land and to nature is very feminine. And to do rituals in a circle and to lead that is, is a feminine energy. It takes a feminine energy to, to hold space in that way. It doesn't take away from your masculineness. I mean, you can still hunt and protect the clan if you needed to. But there's this, there was this bothness to shamanic indigenous cultures like the Vikings, where, where they were, yeah, where they were very open. That's why people were able to sleep with like the same sex and be okay with it. It was very like, oh, okay, yeah, I feel like sleeping with a man now. Oh, I kind of feel like sleeping with a woman. It it was just more open. It's kind of the Abrahamic religions, Christi- Christianity, um, Islam, and Judaism that 
have kind of, those are the world's big three, right? It's the concepts and the commandments that they've instilled that in place that have affected the way in which we see right and wrong. It, 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 and, and that's really where a lot of our cultural stigmas stem from. And it is our job as human beings in our lives to basically dismantle that and to become more accepting of just who we are instead of really caring about. I mean, we pick up all these small little things from a young age, from our parents that we don't even know about until we look back in, in hindsight. We pick up certain things that they say. Like for me, I used to, my dad would beat the shit out of my mom if he came home from work and my mom did not prepare a like a meal in time because she was taking care of three kids so and she had forgotten and there was this one day i remember she it was like a snowy day in new york and she fell asleep with all of us in bed together we were all kind of cuddling it was like we were playing out in the snow and then my dad came home and he long day of work i get it he was frustrated he wanted a meal on the table that's the role of a woman that's what a woman does and he got really violent and very upset very quickly and i remember that and that imprinted in my head like oh this is what a woman does this is what a man does i mean even being like a gay kid, like that was my idea of man and woman because mm -hmm. of that's what I grew up around. So, so I mean, it, all the things that happened to us as a kid, we don't think that we don't put any sort of importance on it, but that very much, all the things that were said, all the ways that people showed affection to us or didn't show affection, even the ways that my dad would tell me like, like the purpose of life, right? Like his definition of life, you would get that at a young age. You wouldn't quite understand it, but that's programming. You're being programmed by your, your parents. My dad would say things like, he would put a lot of emphasis on family and supporting the family and like respecting your elders. And he would lay down all of these rules of like how to behave. And in doing that, it was very much setting the stage of like, this is what you have to look forward to when you have your children and mm -hmm. when you become a father and all this kind of stuff in my, in my head. I was like, I don't want to be a dad. I don't really like girls. And, and uh, this was going on in my head as he was like saying all this stuff growing up. And I mean, that's all patterning that that we're learning at a young age so then how do we have to just break out of it if we if people want to understand their masculinity they need to look at their childhood they need to look at their parents childhood they need to look at why they're they need to learn and understand not just from a cognitive point of view but understand energetically psychologically why their parents treated them the way that they did and then really building the empathy to forgive and to just allow that to just be to accept very openly how their parents are if their parents are a little bit acknowledging that the, the, the parents might have been a bit toxic in the way that mm -hmm. they brought them up so yeah one of the things i want to like i should you talk to your dad now or in, and your family or I don't talk to my father so much. We talk once every blue moon because my parents are very traditional. They were refugees. And so they have a lot of trauma, a lot of hence all the violent behavior growing up um, from my mom and my dad towards each other and also towards us because they, they have a lot of anger and frustration of they, they come from a family of like landowners in China. And then when communism came around, they of of course, communism, I mean, was about, okay, we're all equal now. So let's just take all the land from the landowners. And so they had, their families had targets on their backs. And, and so they, they came to America to get away from basically dying. So that's kind of what happens, ends in a nutshell. And because they carried all this trauma of 
of seeing so much death and violence and betrayal around them at, at such a young age. They, they didn't really get to be children. And so that's kind of how they parented us with this, this very fixed way of looking at a family because they wanted us to basically procreate and to have families ourselves, me and my siblings, because they watched all of their family get killed. So there was such a strong expectation on us carrying on the family name, because if we don't, right, my brother and my sister, none of us are, don't have families right now, and they're straight. I'm the gay one, so I definitely don't want a family. And some gay people want families, but I don't. And, uh, and so they're seeing like the whole purpose of what they went through as what was the whole point of us suffering through all that to have kids that are not going to carry on the family name. So they have a very fixed notion on that. And because of that, they cannot see my sexual orientation as uh, acceptable because it goes against all of their values, all of their pain that they had to go through. And I was really angry at that for a while because, you know, I've come out to them. It's been a long time now. And, and they still don't accept it. My mom like talks to me a little bit more because deep down my mom just wants to not lose her son. But also she still has that that fixed mindset of what it means to be a responsible Chinese male and taking care of your family. And I just don't fit into that category. And so I've kind of gone, gone against the grain uh, of what they've expected. And so so we don't see eye to eye. And, and I love my parents, even though through all of the the trauma and whatnot, because I've gotten to a place where I get it. I like I I can't understand it because I've not gone through that kind of pain, the pain that they've had to go through. But I get that they've gone through a lot, and that it's not for me to understand. All I can do is practice empathy um, towards my parents, even though they can't practice it towards me. And so we have a very strange relationship now. We're not we don't talk very often, probably a handful of times a year. And I've lived away from the U.S. for eight years now, so it's been quite a while. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry to hear that, but yeah, thank no, you so I mean, much it's, for it's sharing. No, I mean, it's actually, yeah. it's nothing to be sorry about because you know, I was just talking to, to this about someone. If it wasn't for my parents' like extreme like way of being, I wouldn't have like left the States. I probably would have, because if, if my parents were super accepting of me, I probably would have stayed in New York. But because they weren't, and they were so suffocating about it. I mean, they went through a whole phase of, they, they tried to send me to like their version of like conversion therapy and like... um all these funny, weird things. They're like, oh, maybe like something's wrong with you physically, you're mentally imbalanced, chemically imbalanced. Let's go see an acupuncture. I mean, that's a weird thing. They would look for alternative, like anything they would look for. It's like, okay, let's see if we can fix him. Mm -hmm. And so in, in their own perverse way, they started to really show their like love and care for me, even though it was like trying to fix me. And I just thought, okay, this is peculiar. But it became suffocating. So I had to distance myself. And if it wasn't for that behavior, I probably wouldn't have left. And if I wouldn't have left, then I wouldn't have discovered the joys of traveling and like living outside of the States, which is I probably would have been stuck in the States for COVID. You know, the, yeah, that would have been not so great. So I'm really glad that my parents were, it was a very traumatic childhood, right? I mean, there's, yeah. there's like silver linings and everything, is right? Yeah. There are, and there's no good and bad. It's just the way you see it, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. One of the last things I wanted to talk to you about was being, you talked, you hinted at it a bit earlier, but being in the gay community, that the idolization of hypermasculinity, I know that I'm from a very multicultural place and it seems like in Western society, Asian men are already seen as, seen as uh, feminine. So I mean, in gay culture, I would imagine that it's 
kind of to another level. And so I'm really sure. kind of curious like to to dig into that for a couple of minutes because I know that yeah. probably the white heteronormative gay lifestyle is a bit different than the minority ethnically yeah. diverse lifestyle, especially being an Asian man with all those stereotypes. Sure. I mean, we have to look at, again, history and colonialization to understand like the, the larger picture of the masculine feminine approach of viewing the world, because before we even look at sex and sexuality, again, if you look at like the opium war, I, I used to there was this, my parents rented this room out to this like extreme, like communist manifesto guy who would like chain spoke in his room. And he was from Northern China. And at a young age, I would go into his room and he would like, I didn't understand like half of what he's saying. Cause I was, I'm a Cantonese speaker and he speaks Mandarin, but I, mm. I understood enough. And he, he would talk about communism. He was very anti-West uh, like Western thought and individualism and like all of the, all the individual freedoms we take for granted and idolize in the West, he was very against. So I, I got this like other perspective growing up. And, and it makes a lot of sense. I can see where he was coming from in that ancient China, like we said, was a little bit more fluid. So we can describe that as a linear, nonlinear, circular. And when we look at Eastern philosophies and Eastern religions, it's circular. It doesn't make a lot of logical sense. And it doesn't move in a particular order in a sequence. If we look at the Abrahamic traditions, it's more linear, it's more hierarchical, you can say more masculine and energy, because it's more about infringing on someone's free will on their right to choose with a set of laws. This is the Ten Commandments is very much like Thou shalt not, da, 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 da. Whereas if you look at Buddhism and you look at all the Eastern traditions, it's more about inquiry. It's like, oh, listen to what I'm saying. I want you to question it and then see if it works. And if it doesn't work, right, okay, then you have your answer. But I want you to ask and figure it out and feel it and experience it. And your direct experience is more important than me telling you how to worship. Right. So that itself is a feminine approach. It's non it's not about, you know, conquering. Right. So because the majority of the world, especially modern, the modern age of globalization and technology and all of this, that's a masculine energy to create in that way to build empires is a masculine energy. And because that has taken over the world with especially the tech age and with um, global commerce, you have that as psychologically, people favor that as better than. So you actually start seeing Asian culture, which was once upon a time in the last, for thousands of years before the, before the industrial age, was moving at a speed that was a bit more in harmony with nature as a more feminine approach. That is now seen as not good enough. And so in Asian culture, because I've lived in Asia for six years, you see um, Asian mentality as always trying to live up to Western standards of modernization. So that's already in like the Asian psyche of like, oh, this is a better way of living, right? Hierarchy, creating order in this way versus a more philosophical receptive way of living. And so that energy is there right, from colonialization. So then now if you take that energy of, oh, the Western masculine approach is better, and then you add in Hollywood, and you add in like the glorification of like Vikings and of, of just over-sexualizing everything, that's attributed with Western society, with the better way of being, 
right? And because of that, you see that in gay subculture, you see that in mainstream culture as like, oh, well, Asian culture is naturally submissive. It's naturally feminine. But it's people are, again, taking their notion of what masculine and feminine means and they're tying it on to better than or worse than. And it is. Asian culture is a little bit more receptive, right? If you look at the philosophies of the ancient peoples of Asia, it's not about, I mean, even if you fought, like if you look at Sun Tzu's Art of War, you know, it's a manual on war. People, there were empires, people fought. That's the masculine energy. However, it wasn't like Machiavelli's like treatise on, on, on like his principles of, okay, this is, it, it, it was, if you look at the Sun Tzu's Art of War, War, it makes you question your inner conflict. And it's like, know thy enemy as, uh, as yourself. That's a very alinear concept on, on looking at how to fight. So it makes you start thinking about a more spiritual, softer approach of like, oh, okay, do I really need to fight? So I mean, it's, it's like you look at martial arts practices, same thing. You learn the masculine form of fight energy to not fight. That's what every martial arts teacher says. You're going to learn this so that you don't have to. Mm -hmm. This is a softer approach. Whereas the Western approach is like, you're going to learn this and you're going to go implement it and you're going to fight gonna the shit out of everything. Guns. Yeah. You're, you're going to get 17 guns. You're going to shoot everything up. You're going to piss on everything. You look at the whole structure of how society is formed around the West. It's taken it, the energy of competition over masculinize it. And then that's why people are the way they are. Yeah. That's why it, it, there's well, so much suicide among males yeah. because it, it's not actually in alignment with nature. And now like Asians, it's like kind of the first time I think in history, um, especially Asian people of the diaspora, Asian Americans, Asian Canadians, British Asians, Asian Australians, all over the world, wherever they are, are struggling with masculinity and femininity because we are inherently indoctrinated into mainstream culture, which is Western in origin. I'm very different from Asian people that grew up in Asia. As soon as I open my mouth, as soon as I, they, the way I behave, the way I, they're like, you're not from here. You look like you're from here. And then as soon as I'm like in North America or somewhere else, people are like, oh, you're American, but you're not quite American. So I've had to navigate this whole masculine feminine thing in, in like hetero mainstream culture. And yeah. then in gay culture, it's this whole other thing. Then it's more about of the, you get like fetishized almost. Yeah. It's like people do that in, in, in gay culture because again of the col colonial mindset that people yeah. haven't looked at. Yeah. So, well, it's interesting that you mentioned some of the history of it because I was just reading Quiet by Susan Cain, the, the book about introverts. Not sure if you're familiar with it, but in it, she talks about how, and this is relating to the aggression, a lot of Asian countries are more collectivist. I lived in Japan for four months. Everyone that was sick would wear a mask. For the, they were sick, but they'd wear a mask to protect everyone else. If you look at how those, the two kind of cultures are handling COVID, it's very different in a lot of ways. It's, yes. I mean, if you look at any video in America, you wouldn't even know that there's a pandemic because no one's wearing masks because they're all so right. individualistic in nature. And then right. in that book, it talks a little bit about how Americans might be a little, and white people in general, might be a little bit more extroverted because colonization took extroverted personalities, whereas Asian cultures, there was some colonization, but not like world level colonization. It's why they're a little bit more introverted. They're, they, well, because there was, uh, there's a principle in Asian. So if you look at the yogis, they call it Santosh. There's a Santosh, which means contentment. And there's also that principle in Buddhism and in Taoism. And it teaches you so this is, again, a fundamental, it's the belief system. It teaches you to be in harmony with 
nature with the yin and the yang. So if you're going to conquer the whole world and impose your belief systems on everyone, that's not in harmony with nature. If you're going to chop down all the trees and just build buildings in place, that's not in harmony with nature. So because that is inherently in the, 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 the belief system in how people were brought up to respect nature, to respect the land. I mean, it's the same in indigenous communities of North and South America. There are indigenous communities in Aboriginal culture. You see also like Siberia, right? All, all the native pagan people at one point in time, right? The, the gypsy culture, the Vikings even, those were all feminine based cultures where they're where they had a relationship with the land. So they were all taken over. <laughs> they were all colonized. It's just so so it, it, that's the prevailing mindset of where people are at. Yeah. And so you can look at extrovert introvert as masculine feminine energy again if we want to talk about an energetic point of view. And yeah, that's we, we, yeah. that's where people are coming from. And so yeah, there is a lot of anger, I would say inherently in in Asian culture, because once upon a time, it was a lot more expressive. You look at the art in Asian culture, a lot of it's been suppressed, because people don't know how to behave. We're in a new age where there's so much intercultural mixing, that people are feeling like they have to be in a certain camp, like, oh, I have to be more Western. I have to be more Asian. So this typically happens like, oh, you're a banana. People say that. People said that to me growing up. Like, oh, you speak like a white person. No, but yeah, you're yeah. wrapped up in like, and, and like, but I'm not a banana. I'm not a white person. I'm not like just an Asian person. I'm, I am Asian and American, but I don't fit into any of these like one little categories that people have created for me. It's like, I'm a human being with many different expressions, culturally, sexually, intellectually, spiritually. So like we can't be so caught up on all of these labels. And I think like Asian people who are brought up biculturally, they, they tend to either fall into like a pro, like they're like only in like an Asian kind of group. They only hang out with Asians and they're very anti like other. And then, or they go the other way to try to assimilate and they don't like hanging out with Asian people because there's a reflection on themselves and they haven't dealt with the self-loathing. You know, mm -hmm. They can't stand looking at themselves. So they try to just hang out with a bunch of white people. So it's like, you get these extremes and I see this all the time. I don't care. I don't care who I hang out with. I hang out with whoever. So long as there's a soul connection, because I don't view the world based on just race and on on identity from a human sense. I'm connecting because of my worldviews, I'm more interested in soul connection. Yeah. And, and on how what your soul has to express. And if that cool, well, we can play. If not, then it's okay, cool. You're stuck in the limited notion of what identity is. It's like wanna I don't necessarily want to engage with that. So yeah. I mean this is kind of the work that we have to do as people. And or we could just live in that way and just feel angry and repressed all the time. Which <laughs> no one really wants to do. Johnson, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. With that, I'm excited to have you share what you've got going on in your life, where people can find you and how they can connect with you. Cause I think this whole I think this is the first time I had a conversation super about spirituality when it comes to masculine and feminine and the history behind the two universes or, or the two worlds and types of you colliding. So why don't you share where people can find you, what you got going on, where they and I'll link everything in the description below for everyone that's listening. Cool. Awesome. My website's just my name, johnsonchong.com, J-O-H-N-S-O-N-C-H-O-N-G.com. So a lot of the work, so I'm a shaman and I also am a Reiki practitioner, a master Reiki practitioner, and I work with different types of uh, coaching practices as well. So I work cognitive, I work in the energetics and also in the emotional, and I help people to uncover 
like what we were talking about, conditionings and patterns, not just from a intellectual psychological place, which is really useful to understand why we are the way we are, but it's really about uncovering the energetics behind it, which is a lot of somatic work, soma coming from the Greek word of the body. So tapping into how that pattern lives out in someone's body as tension, right? So, so I have an eight-week course where there's online and offline, live and non-live components to the work that we do, where we engage in spiritual practices. And when I say spiritual, I mean, a lot of people have like this woo-woo understanding of spirituality. Yeah, there is woo-woo, but I I like to ground it into something that that is accessible and applicable into your life because you could be like meditating for 10 hours a day, but if you can't take that, that insight and treat your neighbors with respect or you like start lashing out at your parents or whatever, like what's the point of doing all that spiritual work if you can't apply Mm -hmm. it into real time. So that's a lot of the work that I do through this eight week transformational shamanic meditation course. And so there's more info about that on my website. I'm revamping it right now. People can find me on Facebook. It's just my name. My my Instagram is offline right now. So but it is my name when it goes back online again. And then that's essentially it. That's how people people can contact me if they want to. Through my website, I'm happy to answer any questions. If people do have any questions, if this brought up anything about their own identity or if they want to have a another vantage point on looking at identity from a shamanic, energetic perspective, I'm always happy to share. Beautiful. Johnson, I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for being here. I loved it and uh, I hope you enjoyed. Well, thank you so much for having me, Luke. Have a great day. You too. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Imperfect Pod. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation about masculine and feminine energies, spirituality and masculinity, and Asian masculinity and how it's represented and built in the different cultures of the world. Uh, And thank you again, Johnson, so much for being a guest on my show. You can connect with Johnson on Instagram at johnsonchong underscore sage sapien, which I'll link in the bio, or you can check out his information more at johnsonchong.com and uh, find out more about his retreats and the work he's doing there. So all of that is linked in the description below. And again, email me, luke at theimperfectpod.com. Connect with me on Instagram at theimperfectpod. And I'll see you all next week again. Yeah.